0: I'm currently suffering from a very serious, I'm mean, going to refer to it as a sports injury. What sport? Um, I have been participating in some, what I'll describe as extreme knitting. You can't prove it, oh, oh. You got nothing
1: legit, oh. Docket episode 115. My name is Michael Spratt.
0: Hi, I'm Emily Tamman.
1: Hey, Emily Tamman. how are you?
0: I'm just fine. How are you?
1: Almost on fire.
0: (laughs) We have a very robust fire in our fireplace right now, and it will probably impact the quality of the audio in this episode, so sorry.
1: It's cold out.
0: (laughs) It's minus 29 outside, so. We're going to stand by our decision to have a fire.
1: How would you know how warm it is outside? You haven't been out today.
0: I may or may not still be in my pajamas, but I'm currently suffering from a very serious I'm mean, going to refer to it as a sports injury.
1: What sport?
0: Um, I have been participating in some what I'll describe as extreme knitting and have developed a quite severe repetitive strain injury in my right forearm that has made me quite incompetent this entire weekend. And which I'm going to use to explain why I haven't been outside today.
1: Is that your cocktail shaking and drinking arm as well?
0: (laughs) I mean, sometimes I shake two-handed, but I have probably disproportionately shake with my... So I mean, as between those two activities...
1: Cocktail injury.
0: It's a cocktail and knitting injury, which, I mean, those are basically my sports. So that's why I stand by calling it a sports injury. Sports. I sports.
1: You do sports. How are you doing other than um, your knitting elbow?
0: You know, it's like remote learners, working from home. I would say I have the quintessential COVID fatigue at the moment, i.e. it's not a symptom of the disease. It's a symptom of living in a pandemic.
1: Yeah, it's been sort of crappy.
0: You've been very busy as well.
1: Yeah, really busy.
0: Yeah, but you don't have any physical injuries. Like just, I mental, do. just mental.
1: Just <laughs> mental. Yeah, like things are going, they're going on.
0: Yeah, it's like everyone, everyone else right are now. What you to do? It like feels like such a loaded question to ask someone how you're doing right now. Because like, no Fantastic. one, I don't think anyone's doing really like- Really good. Super good. Better than you. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I feel like we need to give ourselves permission to express that we're not doing great, even though we're surely doing better than a lot of people. There's no question about that. And don't want to lose focus on, you know, all of the inequities that come with a pandemic. But also I think people should feel- okay about saying they're not okay
1: yeah i've been gearing up for a big murder trial that starts in february so doing all that work and then filling in other stuff that was cancelled so i went from having basically all of january off to prep to this murder to prepping for this murder in my free time while i do other work in other times but it all fits it's all good
0: it is the pattern of the michael Spratt professional trajectory where you only really oscillate between two poles not busy enough and too busy (laughs) and there tends to be very little in between time and and I'm
1: never not busy enough I'm just worried about not being busy enough. sorry
0: that's that's what I should be clear you're you're never not busy enough but you from time to time and with some frequently frequency feel that soon you will not be busy enough and you lament and stress over your forward-looking calendar that never feels busy enough and then Somehow, by the time you step into that actual moment in time, you're too busy.
1: <laughs> it's, I think, a typical criminal lawyer thing, right? Where yeah. You, you look at your calendar twelve months uh, in advance, and you see completely empty dates, and you worry about you know running your small business and you know making money and doing stuff, and then so you start to take in all manner of work, like cases that you wouldn't otherwise take, or places where you otherwise wouldn't take cases, or You know, overextending yourself, and you know, by the time you reach that twelve-month point, uh, all your dates are full, and you're regretting uh, taking on so much work.
0: (laughs) That's pretty much it. But it's also understandable, given the you know fluctuation and uncertainty that of income that comes with that. That of course, it's normal to be stressed about that. But it just always kind of cracks me up because I often try to say to you, just enjoy the quiet times, come home early, like chill, do something for yourself, because you're going to be slammed in three months. But Anyway, here we are.
1: Before we dive into the topic, since um, I think this piece might be out before we record the next podcast, do you know who's getting a profile in McLean's magazine?
0: Who's getting a profile in McLean? Who is writing a commissioned piece in McLean's magazine?
1: Sorry, I'll rephrase. Do you know what's getting a profile (laughs) in McLean's magazine?
0: Yes, what inanimate object is getting a profile in McLean's magazine?
1: My litigation bag.
0: Your briefcase is being featured in a story written by you in McLean's magazine. Not just online. This isn't some digital puff piece, okay? This is going to be in the print edition.
1: Uh, I had to attend a photo shoot uh, for the bag um, as a... Um, Chaperone, if you will. Bag man. Um, yeah, <laughs> a literal Where my bag, man. bag had a professional photo shoot because... I put this thing out on Twitter about litigation bags and my litigation bag and the story behind how I got it and what it means because I found my litigation bag literally in the trash um, and I brought it back to the office because after i dove into the dumpster because um, you didn't
0: have a litigation bag and there was a perfectly not really in great condition one but there was one in the trash yeah, and i was
1: like a first-year lawyer and i'm like whoa a litigation bag in the trash that seems like a great
0: thing it's like a sign yeah
1: so i brought it back to the office and uh, i was getting ready to go to court with uh, matt weber um, because i was junioring on a murder trial with him and he says what the hell is my litigation bag doing back in the office i threw that out yesterday <laughs> And so i tweeted about it does anyone have any other stories this is sort of fun like i was thinking maybe we could do a podcast episode where we can talk to people about their litigation bag with litigation bag stories because lots of people have fun litigation bag stories um, and apparently those tweets caught an eye at someone at mclean's and they contacted me saying that they couldn't stop thinking about the thread and wanted me to write a story about my bag to which i responded do you mean you want me to write a personal story about my bag? Or do you want some sort of pretentious think piece about the value of physical objects in the digital <laughs> age? And they said, yeah, do something like that. And so I did. And now it is going to be... Why is, why is print media dying?
0: <laughs> Come on now. It's a... I want to say human interest story, but it's a object interest story.
1: I was going to say it's an, it's a not interesting story so it's an object interest story so it's just really an object story
0: it's great i think it's great it's a good little piece why not
1: but that actually is a pretty good segue because uh we're going to talk today about um another front page uh sorry yours is not going to be on the front page though uh, do, so you know that? <laughs> do you know that do you know
0: I mean, I haven't imagined it's just like you the picture of your briefcase on the front page of McLean. I mean, I don't think it was a slow news month in January, but OK, carry on.
1: Um, for those who might uh, get this inside joke, no, I wasn't jumping out of the bag or in some funny pose with the bag or get got tricked into um, Posing some in a closet. comedic <laughs> pose in a closet, jumping out of a closet like a creature of nightmares uh, for the story. So that's good.
0: And if you don't know the inside joke, you pretty much only need to Google Michael Spratt's name to find the photo that we're referencing here. Anyway, as you were saying. Go do that and come back. McLean's. Right.
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, an article that was written by Leah McLaren, who we actually sort of have a bit of a connection with. No, we don't. (laughs) Um,
0: We followed her work for many years.
1: Did we not sublet and live? in her ex-boyfriend's house between second and third year law school.
0: Yes, we did. Sorry, that's there right. You Therefore, go. we're Therefore, basi- we basically know her.
1: There you go. <laughs> so we have that connection, but we also have the connection that she wrote a, a front-page front story uh, for McLean's Magazine in uh, the December issue that somehow I missed until, uh, until you found it in January about Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, and specifically the Sullivan and Chan case that we talked about a couple of episodes ago.
0: That's right. So a couple episodes ago, we talked about the defense of extreme intoxication. We kind of expressed some of our frustration about the ways in which the decision was being talked about. I mean, in the sense that while there's definitely room for reasonable people to agree or disagree about Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code and the policy basis for it and everything else, that in in a lot of ways, the Sullivan and Chan decision was actually being completely misrepresented by people as the basis for their outrage and you know I think we tried to make the case on the podcast that if you're going to be outraged be outraged on a correct understanding of the law and that would be fair to feel that way but you know don't say oh the court of appeal just found that if you have a drink you can rape someone with impunity because that was not that's that's not what it means so we had talked about that and our frustration about just basically how uninformed the public debate was. And again, I just want to emphasize, not everyone who was critical was misinformed. There were many people who were properly informed who were critical, but there were also many, many, many people who were completely ill-informed and outraged. And so along comes this piece in McLean's magazine in December, a really long piece. Like I was going to print the web version. It was over 30 pages. So, you know, it was, it's a substantial long form piece and it was the cover story. And it has some absolutely unacceptable errors in it.
1: Before we jump into the unacceptable errors, the the episode that we did on extreme intoxication is episode 108. So you go listen to that. But just really briefly, in case you're a new listener and you don't feel like listening to um, the back catalog and you just want to start fresh. Of course, section 33.1 is a criminal code provision that prohibits in most cases, um, cases of violence, so murders, sexual assaults, assaults, the defense of um, extreme intoxication.
0: That's right. That was a defense that had been recognized at common law in a Supreme Court case called DAVIO, basically anchored in very, very fundamental principles of criminal law that you cannot be guilty if you don't have both a guilty act and a guilty mind. and. Um, to attract liability, a guilty act has to be done voluntarily. And the theory underpinning this case is that in certain cases of extreme intoxication, more than like blackout drunk, but like where you essentially lose control over your body and mind, that in that very limited subset of cases that there shouldn't be criminal liability because the person is not acting voluntarily and by extension really with intent.
1: Yeah, it's an incredibly high standard. The accused bears the onus of of sort of proving that defense, and usually it needs to be um, buttressed with expert evidence and and toxicological evidence, um, you know, to provide some reality or air of reality to the defense. And it's it's not it wasn't and it isn't um, successful very often. But what happened after the Davio case is there was a Public outrage that that um, this sort of defense was allowed, and so um, Parliament enacted Section thirty three point one of the Criminal Code, which limits that defense
0: and basically finds that the defense is not available to you if you become voluntarily intoxicated. So it substitutes the mens rea for consuming the alcohol for the mens rea that would otherwise be required in order to establish the offense. So it was a way of of Parliament responding with legislation to a judicial decision that they didn't agree with.
1: And 20 years goes by where this this um, Section 33.1, the prohibition on, on that sort of self-induced intoxication, ex- extreme intoxication defense, was litigated at, in um, superior courts all across Canada. And the majority of those courts found that the section was unconstitutional and allowed the defense.
0: Because essentially... It could, in some circumstances, allow for the conviction of a person who didn't have the constitutional minimum of intent.
1: And just because the defense was allowed by those courts, um, it still was rarely successful. Just because you can raise a defense doesn't mean that a court's going to accept the defense. But the majority of, of courts found that that section was unconstitutional and you could raise a defense. But this that section never made it up to courts of appeal or to the Supreme Court, I think, because the government, to a large extent, you know, didn't appeal those decisions where the court said that it was unconstitutional. But finally, um, last year, the Section 33.1 def- um, prohibition did make it up to the Court of Appeal, the Ontario Court of Appeal, um, in the case of Sullivan and Chan, which you can listen to in Episode uh, 108. And ultimately, the Court of Appeal agreed with all of those lower court decisions striking it down and and struck down the provision, it's now headed up to the Supreme Court. But this is what Leah McLaren wrote about for McLean's back in December.
0: We've talked before on the podcast about the role of the media in fostering an informed public debate on issues of, you know, well on on all issues. What's funny about this piece, if I can say funny is probably not the right word, is that it's actually... a a relatively sympathetic piece in the sense that leah mclaren clearly seems to personally feel that in particular mr chan is exactly the kind of person who should be able to use this defense so she you know neither sullivan nor chan were charged with sexual offenses and that you know she saw this as like a good kid who obviously had a horrible reaction to consuming mushrooms um and caused him to you know lose control and behave in a way that was not consistent with his character or consistent really with even being in control at all. And so in some ways, the the piece, I think, is geared towards kind of making the case that maybe there is room for this defense of extreme intoxication to exist in law. Because, look, here's a case, you know, don't think about it in terms of a sexual assault case. Think about it in terms of this case. And would you want to take this defense away, you know, from someone like Chan? The article has so many big problems in terms of how it expresses the law, And what's weird about it is that actually the problems are not so much with the characterization of 33.1 of the criminal code. It's more just like completely incorrect articulations of like how law works and how the so-called dialogue between courts and legislatures works. And so I just want to give a couple of examples because I think it's really irresponsible. Um, And I also maybe will say that You know, after I tweeted about this, a lot of people engaged with my tweet, and I saw a few people saying, journalists shouldn't be able to write these types of stories unless they're lawyers or have legal expertise. And I I really don't agree with that. I think journalists, part of their function is to develop sufficient knowledge by consulting with experts and doing their research in order to report on stories. Some of them will have to do with legal principles. Some of them will have to do with scientific concepts that, you know, you can't be an expert in everything, but that you have a responsibility as a journalist, not only to fact check, but to make sure that your, you know, exposition of principles or facts or whatever it is are correct. And if you don't have the expertise to consult with people who do, and that obviously did not happen here.
1: Especially on an issue like this that, you know, is not only complicated legally, but You know, if misunderstood, could, I think, really hurt confidence in the criminal justice system, the legislative process, how courts um, and parliament interact. Because, you know, when this decision came out, there was irresponsible media coverage saying, now it's a defense because of this case to uh, to sexual assault cases to say, uh, I was too drunk and it's gonna be a get out of jail free card for rapists. Yeah, And so that was incredibly misinformed. And the other responses to, to or the other side of the coin with the responses to your tweets, I think it, it's important to mention as well. Lots of people who had concerns about this decision who are victim rights advocates, who um, advocate for you know, reforming sexual assault laws for a number of reasons, they were often attacked by people in the legal profession or people who disagreed with them for discussing this issue when Sullivan and Chan came out.
0: And that's why I felt it was really important to kind of preface a few minutes ago that not every criticism was ill-informed. Not every person who took a different view than say we did did so because they were ill-informed. They just have a different vision for you know how the law should progress and everything. And you're right, there were some people, and it's funny because in our original podcast, we had actually mentioned the activist Julie Lalande as someone who was putting forward very, you know, compelling, well thought through criticisms of the decision. And when I tweeted my criticism of Leah McLaren's piece, she pointed out how much she was attacked by, in particular, lawyers and legal academics for her criticisms of Sullivan and Chan and sort of dismissing her as uninformed and you don't understand, you just don't get it, you're not a lawyer. And like, I think that's really problematic as well. But this is, like, way beyond that. This isn't mischaracterizing, you know, the impact of a decision. So let's get into some of the specifics. Yeah, the
1: the Leah McLaren police sort of flew under the radar and didn't attract that sort of critique and criticism. Um, So let's do it now.
0: Yeah. So I'm just going to start with something that's not necessarily, like, totally incorrect, but is very clumsily expressed, I would say. So she says the ancient greek philosophers believed in fate a system of divine justice ruled by the vagaries of the gods for whom mortals were playthings today in canada we have an improved system liberal democracy as governed by common law underpinned not by myths and deities but the charter of rights and freedoms as set out by legislators and the judiciary okay but as the tragedy of thomas chan illustrates our system is far from infallible as the old legal chestnut goes Hard cases make bad laws. Okay, so that's just, I find, it's fine. It's not incorrect. It's a bit of a clumsy way of trying to express like how a liberal democracy works and the role of the constitution and the courts. Also in Canada, to my knowledge, we say bad facts make bad law. I I understand that hard cases make bad laws is an expression. I Googled it, but I've certainly never heard it expressed that way. Okay, so then she gives a bit of the background of the Davio case and makes this assertion. And, And I should say, she frequently in this piece references, quote, experts without ever naming them. So she, you know, all the experts I talked to said this, experts that I spoke to, but she doesn't name them. And I can't imagine that she did um, or that some of her assertions could possibly have come from any legal expert. So this one says, to say the Davio verdict hasn't aged well is an understatement. Every legal expert I spoke to for this story agreed the decision likely wouldn't have made, been made today. But the Supreme Court's decisions are final. They stand until tested again by the same court. Now, would you agree that every expert on criminal law would conclude that Davio wouldn't be decided today the way it was decided at the time?
1: No. Court after court, case after case, for the last 20 years has reaffirmed the Davio decision by striking down Section 33.1 and finding it to be unconstitutional. So. I don't think that it's that you can say that davio would have been decided differently today and you certainly can't say that these legal decisions stand until decided again by the same court because that ignores a really important feature of the dialogue between courts and parliaments and that's the ability of parliament to respond to court decisions by crafting laws and specifically in the davio case the court sort of invited um parliament to craft laws. So, I think there's like a double wrongness yeah. there, both in terms of the experts and and setting up what what I think is is a mischaracterization about how our laws actually evolve.
0: That's right. And I mean, to be fair, the following paragraph gets a little bit more like she says the reasons it looks it's so looked upon so poorly are multiple but the most compelling one is scientific and she then goes on to make the case that our understanding of intoxication has changed and maybe she's right that the facts of Davio would not lead to an acquittal today on the basis of the principles that were articulated in that case but it sounds like she's saying like you know our views of sexual assault have changed and modern courts wouldn't decide that way and I really don't think that's correct I think the the legal underpinning of Davio the overwhelming weight of experts think was correct, and we talked about that. we e- we even did an episode before 108 on extreme intoxication, in an and I forget what the case was called now, but and even there we said you know most experts think there is some residual space for a defense that negates mens rea on the basis of extreme intoxication. But, but that, anyway,
1: that's all the problems in the piece, right? There's yeah. nothing else.
0: Uh, no, no. So then, so so then she's trying to explain what happened after Davio, as you ex- explained a minute ago. There was a huge public outcry. Alan Rock was the Justice Minister at the time, and the government responded quite quickly to the Davio case by enacting Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code to essentially take the uh, uh, defense away in all but um, a small number of cases. And that's, you know, for people who aren't lawyers, like that is the, the normal dialogue that takes place between the courts and Parliament, that subject to constitutional limits, if Parliament doesn't like the way the common law is developing, it can change it by legislatively. Now, before I read this next part, I just want to emphasize one other thing for people who might be listening. 33.1 of the Criminal Code is the provision we've been talking about. Section 33 of the Charter is the Notwithstanding Clause. So just keep keep those distinct. 33 Notwithstanding Clause, 33.1 of the Criminal Code. Okay, so everyone was outraged. Alan Rock moved swiftly fast tracking a corrective bill through parliament that would prevent extreme intoxication as a defense in criminal cases involving violent physical assault. What's more, he found a way to do this without invoking the political headache of the notwithstanding clause, the usual legal requirement for legislators seeking to amend the charter. Okay, there's a lot wrong with that part. Responding to a judicial decision by enacting legislation is not amending the charter. Nobody amended the charter, Uh, The Charter is part of our Constitution, and uh, amending the Constitution is a very involved and difficult thing that cannot be done unilaterally by any federal government. Correct? Correct. Okay. So Parliament can do one of two things. It can take a decision that involves the constitutionality of legislation and seek to preserve the legislation, notwithstanding the fact that it's unconstitutional. Also, Parliament can enact legislation knowing it to be unconstitutional and invoke the notwithstanding clause to insulate it from being struck down on the basis of it being unconstitutional. Or if the courts say something is unconstitutional for some reason, Parliament can respond by trying to craft a law that gets around what would otherwise make it unconstitutional. So, you know, if the law was overbroad, by narrowing it somewhat. So it's it's not, it doesn't need the notwithstanding clause if Parliament is satisfied that it's not unconstitutional the way it's drafted,
1: and there's no need to use the notwithstanding clause here because it's not like there was a prohibition that the court said wasn't constitutional and struck down. It was there was no in provision in the criminal code. They are interpreting the common law, so there's there's nothing to use the notwithstanding clause on.
0: I mean, you could, in the sense that I think from the very beginning. The, even at the time of enactment, the weight of expert opinion, I think, or at least significant expert opinion before the parliamentary committees and stuff, was this 33.1 that you're proposing, it's unconstitutional. Yeah, yeah. at that and point, so, they
1: can use the notwithstanding So they could clause.
0: have. If, if if they agreed that it was unconstitutional or if they were persuaded by that argument, in order to make sure that it stood the test of time, they could have enacted the notwithstanding clause just in case kind of thing. They didn't do that. They could have, but yeah. But, but typically... That's not how it works. So then the next sentence says, Rock's maneuver, i.e. enacting 33.1 of the code. Legislating. Legislating, you know, the, the most fundamental function of the legislator. Known as, quote, notwithstanding by stealth, gives politicians the power to override decisions of the court by statutory amendment. It's controversial, as are all amendments to the charter, but it wasn't nearly as controversial as the Davio ruling.
1: He didn't amend the Charter. No, he didn't. He drafted legislation in response to the Supreme Court's interpretation of the common law. In fact, something that the Supreme Court often suggests Parliament should do. He legislated, which is what legislators do.
0: And there's nothing particularly stealthy about it because it happens in one of the most public of forums, the House of Commons.
1: And it's... I think what I said to you is a while ago when we were talking about this is if you want to talk about notwithstanding by stealth, that's actually what the government did after by not appealing findings of unconstitutionality to courts of appeal, letting what what almost unanimously was considered to be an unconstitutional section in the criminal code never get to appeal, never get a final decision and remain to be you know, mermaid operative. That would be sort of notwithstanding by stealth, by inaction. Um, but the act of legislating in response to Supreme Court's decision is none of that. And it has nothing to do with amending the charter.
0: Yes. I mean, I had never heard this phrase, notwithstanding by stealth. And I looked it up and, and, you know, I think the way you framed it is particularly strong, but what I guess the, the academics who coined the term we're sort of talking about in a way what did happen here which is that so many people are telling you it's unconstitutional i mean this was the hallmark of stephen harper's criminal justice policy and rather than invoke the notwithstanding clause with all the scrutiny that would bring you just kind of say yeah well we disagree we we think it is constitutional so we're going to enact it as is we're not going to invoke the notwithstanding clause knowing that it can take years for the provision to be effectively challenged and overturned and so you know you're going to kind of roll with it for however long that you can and get the political cred that you're seeking from your base or from you know your expanded group of supporters that you're trying to attract so i do sort of get that and i do think this probably is a provision much like a lot of harper's um criminal justice legislation that like they pro- they knew it was very problematic and they implemented it anyway and figured oh, it'll be someone's headache in the future but it certainly has nothing whatsoever to do with an amendment to the Charter. I think what she means is it's always controversial when you invoke the Notwithstanding Clause because you are overriding the Charter. You're not amending the Charter, but you're saying we don't care that this is unconstitutional. So again, like this is where you know, language matters. And what she has said is fundamentally incorrect. But I think I know what she's getting at. Okay, the next part. At the time, constitutional law experts and criminal lawyers complained bitterly that Section 33.1 was unconstitutional for the simple reason that cases like Thomas Chan's do happen, and when they do, all citizens have a right to a fair defense. (laughs) The amendment, they said, violated this key principle of the Charter, but legislators as well as the media and public largely shrugged this off. Rock and other proponents pointed out that if Section 33 was so terrible, it would be tested. Okay, now this next part is another... Like, not only is it incorrect legally, but it's also sort of incorrect grammatically. Like, the sentence itself doesn't even really make sense. Amendments passed without the notwithstanding clause are by definition open to, and this next part is in quotes, second look cases by the courts after five years.
1: (laughs) Can you just read that whole sentence
0: again? amendments passed without the notwithstanding clause are by definition open to second look cases by the courts after five years. (laughs) Like, what is a second look case? And by definition, like, so every legislative amendment in her understanding is is automatically by by definition reviewed by the courts after five years. I believe that what she is getting mixed up here is that when the legislature does invoke Section 33.1 of the Charter, Secretary. or sorry, Section 33, the Notwithstanding Clause, to override the Charter, basically, to implement unconstitutional legislation, baked into that is a sunset clause, so that if you override the Charter, after five years, there has to be a legislative review. So Parliament has to review and renew Section 33 if they want it to continue to stand. Like The theory being that You don't want Parliament waiving the Charter and then kind of forgetting about it, right? So every five years, if if you still want to invoke Section 33, you have to do it again.
1: But there's no such thing as a second look case. Our courts don't automatically (laughs) review legislation, criminal or otherwise, every five five years. years to make sure that it's Charter compliant. And that's what she wrote isn't a proper sentence.
0: Yeah, like... By definition, open to second look cases by the courts after five years. No. That just makes no sense. Okay. The last thing I want to point out from this article, which could have used serious <clears throat> editing and review by someone with some kind of basic knowledge, actually, of how like how the notwithstanding clause works.
1: Well, it's not just even like basic legal knowledge. No. It's just like...
0: Poli-sci... There you majors go. Could how
1: t- legislation works, how the charter works, how the relationship between courts. The executive, and parliament the judiciary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, this next part is problematic for just a totally different reason, in my view. So after talking at length about Chan, um, she turns to talk about the Sullivan case and she makes this statement, and I'd like your response to it. Unlike Chan, Sullivan wasn't a compelling defendant, he was unemployed lived at home with his mother and had struggled with crack and opioid addiction and chronic depression. He had a history of minor criminality and violence, and like many troubled characters, he was a victim of childhood abuse himself. So the law applies to him differently. Yeah, exactly. Like, he wasn't a compelling defendant. Like, that is totally besides the point. Like, I think, like, in terms of how compelling a person is, I understand to... Harken back to the legal chestnut she referred to earlier bad facts make bad law
1: no it's hard cases make.
0: (laughs) sorry hard cases make bad law hard
1: cases make hard law
0: it is true that less sympathetic defendants sometimes probably do get less of a fair shake you know like that it's it's easy and people often talk about how white privilege and class privilege often is given weight in criminal proceedings you know bail decisions also like there's no question that that's a problem with the justice system but she's almost putting it forward like you know someone like this like you know maybe he should be convicted which is like besides the point if he consumed an intoxicant that made him lose within the limited scope of 33.1 control and become an automaton then it should apply to him the same as it does to Chan, even though Chan is like a good-looking private school rugby player
1: yeah I mean it's I think that's you know a communication problem and and I mean like lawyers when we're coming up with hypotheticals to challenge um to challenge uh, the constitutionality provisions, you know, we often draft the the best hypothetical ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the good person who makes one mistake. I see what she's doing, and in the in the in the context of a large piece where she does interview Chan, um, she does sort of take a deep dive into things. She looks at his personal circumstances, and I guess you need to make like a thirty thousand word front page piece <laughs> readable. Like I sort of get what she's saying, um, and so I can excuse that, but ultimately. Uh, there's no excuse for on an issue this important that goes to the heart of the relationship between the community, parliament, the courts, the charter, fundamental freedoms, to so ham-fistedly explain and unclearly uh, sort of articulate and just sort of fuck up that relationship in a way that I think does real disservice to you know the complicated debate that can exist between you know what the law should be and what it is and and what we want to accomplish with it
0: yeah and i mean luckily i would say her the grossest errors in this piece don't really go to the crux of what the debate is about 33.1 of the criminal code in the sense that she didn't misrepresent you know the facts or the scientific evidence or the legal framework itself necessarily but for me it also it it I, I worry that it undermines confidence in the media generally when, like for me, when I read pieces like this, I can see that it, that there's an error, right? Lots and lots of people can. And it, it makes me ask myself like, God, what are they getting wrong when they're reporting on the pandemic? Or what are they getting wrong, you know, on the vaccine rollout? Or on other issues where I don't have the expertise to be able to identify even quite glaring errors like this, you know? So like it, it for me, like, it's not like I ever had a lot of confidence in Leah McLaren, you know, as a j- credible journalist or anything like that, but that Maclean's would would print a piece like that, you know, and like, you know, th- it has its own criticisms um, that people, you know, might have, but it just to say that, like, it's just incorrect.
1: No, like get it read by, you know, anyone who writes opinion pieces for for Maclean's, like Paul Wells or someone like that is going to see these errors because they're so fundamental. Have, I mean, I talk to journalists all the time on background that call me up to to walk through a case or to talk about a legal issue. Um, and, you know, I've caught reporters saying, you know, like, that's technically not right. That's wrong. That's just like grossly not the case. And, you know, you make sure that these mistakes aren't made because this is more important than like, you know, your column in the Globe and Mail lifestyle section every Saturday where you talk about the frivolities of living in downtown Toronto like this is fundamental nuts and bolts uh, stuff that you got to get right
0: yeah and your editors also should be wanting to be sure that it's correct and sometimes when you consult with experts sometimes journalists will even send you like what they've written and say can you just is this correct And, you know, that obviously didn't happen here. And again, like I said before, I think it's aggravated by the fact that all of these parts have the word experts, experts, experts all around them. Like all the experts I told, I talked to and oh, experts were, you know, and like, I think that is also really concerning. No
1: expert is going to cop to ever talking to her on this story ever after. No kidding.
0: No kidding. And I wonder whether any anyone that she spoke to saw this piece and raised it because This is the other thing. This piece totally fell under the radar. I mean, it was released digitally in December, uh, in November, actually, late November. It was then the December issue. And it wasn't until January that someone with the paper copy flagged it for me and said, have you seen this? It's kind of gibberish. I can't even understand it. Um, And so you know, it had been out there since November and I didn't see anyone talking about it. So I don't know if that's just because it was so long no one bothered to read it. There's also profiles of several of the lawyers involved in the cases with big glossy photos of them in the piece. I don't know if any of them spoke up after the fact or reached out to McLean's or to Leah McLaren to say like, "Uh, you've really mischaracterized. Well, not just mischaracterized, you've like... Fundamentally (laughs) got wrong. Like
1: basic principles of how democracy works.
0: Yeah. And again, they don't really go to the crux of the debate on Sullivan and Chan, but they could just as easily have. And anyone without the knowledge wouldn't have
1: known. But you're also leaving people with the impression that laws are reviewed after five years. (laughs) I mean, like things that aren't correct. And
0: second look cases, they're called. Oh, second look cases. By definition, amendments. Strike that for the record. Second look cases. so. Uh, So
1: I mean... It it may seem like nitpicking like a small thing, but on an issue this important I think that you gotta get it right.
0: Yeah, agreed. All right. That's it. That's we're it. We're doing short episodes there now, and I would just like to point out that we said we were gonna do an every two week rotation and it has now been precisely fourteen days since we last recorded.
1: We are slightly over half an hour, so well, we're, we're doing our best. We're pushing it. Um, But look, if you like the new format, let us know. You can always um, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at M Spratt. What are you at, Emily?
0: At Emily Tamman.
1: There you go. Super easy. (laughs) Um, And, you know, no one ever listens to the end. So you may have not heard the end of every episode where I say, if you like the podcast, go rate. and go review it, so we can game those algorithms, so we can uh, move up and like overtake um, the strategists and boys in short pants.
0: <laughs> that's our life goal. Need right to right pick,
1: there. A, pick a fight with someone.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good. We go. Thanks for listening.
1: Bye. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song "Uh Oh" as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at MichaelSpratt.com, or you can subscribe to the Docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter, at Emily Tammen, and you'd follow me on Twitter, at M. Spratt. Thanks for listening.
0: You can't prove it, oh, oh, you got nothing legit.